I feel like every episode we start, uh, there's always a little bit of bleed. It's the end of the conversation of us. It's usually the end of the conversation of us talking about clapping out the episode. Yeah, yeah. and how good we did. Exactly. It's like one of those uh, Tibetan bells, you Mm -hmm. know? Yeah, sound bath. It's a real sound bath. It's like a sound bath. Yeah. But not this time. We're not going to do it this time. No. This time, it's just cacophony. Speaking of cacophony... Journos, a stream of consciousness news podcast with Stephen Jackson and Brandon R. Reynolds. Uh, remember, Stephen, last year around late December when we said, when we promised, when we threatened to mm-hmm. talk about AI in yeah. the year of our Lord 2023? Yes. So we I said we were going to get into it and we were going to return to it often and frequently. Yep. And, and here we are, February, and we're going to do it. Indeed, because a promise made is a debt unpaid. Sure. That's got to be a thing that somebody says. It is. It's from some story. Yeah. So the AI conversation, what is it going to do to artists and writers? Mm -hmm. It's something that plagues us, particularly as writers and sometimes artists. But we have a guest today, Stephen. Yes. You knew that. It did. And I knew that. Yep. His name is Ted Rawl. He's a political cartoonist, has been for many years. Hello, Ted. Hello, Brandon. Ted and I work together. Who, what, why? I've brought that up on the pod before, brought up who, what, why on the pod before. And it was a real honor to start working with Ted because I have had him in my professional life since I've been in journalism for 20 years because I was in alt weeklies and his stuff was always in there basically part of the reason that people would pick it up. It's like, well, we're going to do it for the cartoons and for the calendar stuff. Where Where's the punk band playing this weekend? And so that was one of the things that anchored so much of alt journalism was cartoons by people like Ted and eh, some of those other guys. Yeah, like Tom Tomorrow, Ruben Bowling, Ward Sutton, Emily Flake, Stephanie McMillan, so many names. Yeah. And are they all still working or have they moved on to marketing or, or are they kind of all doing different stuff? Uh, they're all doing different things. Um, Ward's still working. Ruben Bowling is not his real name. He's still drawing, but he's also doing corporate stuff. And t- Tom Tomorrow's hanging on as best. I think probably better than most. It's obviously the weeklies pretty much are no more in terms of relevance to the culture or even, I mean, there's, I live in New York city and there's no alt weekly at all. Right. I mean, we had several, you know, we had the New York press village voice and something called New York weekly for a long time. And then a bunch of community weeklies that people don't, yeah. And there's, they're all gone. It's crazy. You've, you've successfully maintained your status as syndicated cartoonist though, right? So you you are among the folks who are just still doing it 100% of the time and eking out a living doing that, correct? Yeah, eking is is sometimes what it feels like. And also I do some writing too. And I do radio interviews and books and I'm trying to do some Hollywood stuff. I think I realized pretty early on that this thing was sort of flushing down the toilet it was necessary to sort of branch out and do a bunch of different things and to mm-hmm. be prolific. Being prolific is really key. And also to embrace the web, which most, I mean, I hate to say it, many of my colleagues didn't. I still have friends, good friends who are cartoonists who still to this day do not have a website. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, like, yeah. forget about social media. They don't, they never, 
adapted in the mid nineties. I mean, I had a friend who lost his job at a paper in Illinois and a couple months later, a friend of mine said, you know, when that happened, I had an opening at my paper and I tried to reach out to him, but I couldn't find any way to reach to contact him. So I hired someone else. He couldn't imagine that he was ever going to get laid off. And I think that happened to a lot of people. That is a good intro to what we're going to be talking about today. Again, specifically is how advances in technology end up producing sometimes unexpected, sometimes bad, sometimes good results as it relates to art, creation, business, etc. And I think what we're both really excited to talk to you about is specifically the ramifications of things like mid-journey, stable diffusion, etc. Because a lot of the chat GPT conversation and the AI conversation recently has to do with what's it going to do to the American workforce, right? What's it going to do to marketing jobs? What's it going to do to like office jobs? And that's something that folks are really concerned about. But I don't think enough has really been discussed about what it's going to do to the more purely creative professions. And I think that you certainly have a lot to say about that. You had a great op-ed in Who, What, Why with Brandon recently. We want to dig into that. Yeah, let's drill down into that a little bit, the piece you wrote, which is about this lawsuit from these three artists, Sarah Anderson, Kelly McKernan, and Carla Ortiz, who are suing the big players in AI art, Stability AI and MidJourney, who created these art generators, and then an artist portfolio platform called DeviantArt, which has its own AI art generator. And so the idea, as you said, Ted, is that these companies are profiting off of all of the work that people like you and Sarah and Kelly and Carla and all these other artists have put online over decades and decades and now are just being scraped and used as basically training models. Talk about that a little bit, Ted. When internet, like web 1.0 started, it felt like a lot of people were feeling like, oh, the government built this. This is going to belong to all of us. It felt like a public commons and that all sorts of good things were going to come out of it. And now we know that obviously it was completely seized by giant corporations, many of whom, uh, let's just say, have behaved unethically, to say the least. And so now we don't have that naivete about this, about open AI. I mean, it's literally the 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 article was prompted by this piece in the New York Times, right, about this colleague of mine, a fellow cartoonist who I don't know, but she basically was complaining that her work is being stolen. Her copyrighted and trademarked material is being stolen uh, by this company for, and that it's basically, it's already a for-profit model. There's not even an illusion of mm-hmm. idealism here. We're going straight for the for the cash here. And, and that's why people are freaking out. Now we know it's a cash grab. I mean, I, I kind of compared it with Google Books, if people remember that. I mean, that was the biggest, and I wrote about this too, but it was like the biggest intellectual property grab in human history. It's the biggest heist. Google literally was like, we are out to scan every single book in every language that's ever been published anywhere. That was their goal modest as it was. And we're just going to scan it all. And why? Because, and, and, you know, we're not going to talk to any of the copyright holders because, hey, wouldn't it be cool to have all these books online where everybody could read them, you know, as if Google was, you know, a, uh, you know, the United Nations, like doing good things. When I started 
making money as a cartoonist, you could charge the pay, the rates for uh, a color cartoon were twice as much as the, as the rate for a black and white cartoon. So you could always upcharge. And then once Photoshop became the norm and color became the norm, uh, then the rates dropped down and, they, and basically you're expected to do color even though it's more work. And so, and you see that same exact process, like for example, in the early days of the vacuum cleaner, where homes were expected to just be broom clean before the vacuum cleaner, but then expectations of cleanliness rose along with the prevalence uh, of the vacuum and they were expected to do better. The bottom line is the only people who benefited from those changes were really the people like Hoover, companies that made vacuum cleaners and Adobe, companies, the company that makes Photoshop. And so the the hard work of the cartoonists and the homemakers in these two examples is all getting monetized and scraped by these corporations. And so I think this reminds us of that kind of period where it's kind of like, where's the AI stuff coming from? Well, it's just basically a pastiche of crap scraped from the internet created by people who were hoping to monetize their content. And now they can't. And also just to add into that, the idea that all of the hype, all of the press around these art-based AIs is, oh, it means all of these people can become artists who haven't been before. Like the idea that like you can become a great artist or filmmaker or whatever as the technology develops with just a few keywords plugged in, but not thinking so much about, well, how did these AIs learn to be artists in the first place? And so talk about that from your perspective. You said you looked on a site called haveibeentrained.com to see if your art had shown up as part of these training models, as part of the data sets. And sure enough, there were some Ted Rawls in there. Yeah, there were there were quite a few. I, I, I stopped counting. I would say there were scores and scores, hundreds and hundreds, uh, and uh, and lots of stuff by people whose work is kind of similar to mine, also as you might expect, like Tom Tomorrow. And so, it, it, you know, I can't say I was at all surprised by this. I guess what's frustrating about it to me is the fact that this is being treated like it's research. And we're not trying to make money out of it. We're just trying to explore it. But this isn't like, you know, it's not really a university kind of thing. It is a, is this is a for-profit company buried under the illusion of shell companies that are supposedly nonprofit. It, it's a fraud. And it's going to depend really, the course of this lawsuit is going to largely depend on the ability of judges in pretrial hearings and possibly jurors, if it gets to that point, to see whether they're able to understand how this works and you know whether or not they're you know this material is being transformed in some sort of meaningful way under the copyright code to make something new. And if it does, then the jury will say, okay, well, it's okay. Then, But if it's not, then they're going to say, okay, well, people need to be remunerated. Of course, by the time this thing ever gets to trial, much less a series of appeals that might go all the way to the US Supreme Court, the cat's already out of the bag. It's going to be yeah. 5, 10, 15 years, and it'll be all, we'll all be closer to death and whatever. I don't, it's kind of like really simple. To me, it's like if you feed a bunch of material into a a computer program, and then it regurgitates stuff that's based on that. It doesn't matter to me what it looks like or what the result is. The fact is there'd be no result if you hadn't put stuff data in. And so that data 
that was used for it, somehow it deserves compensation or it needs compensation under our present laws. But I'm not sure anybody's going to get that when it goes to trial. Which is sort of like what was going on with Spotify. I mean, the whole argument there was Spotify is benefiting from all this because they've made these arrangements with the labels and the artists will get, you know, a couple of cents per play, but it shifted that whole economic model where now so many up and coming artists who once upon a time could have said, well, we can at some point get a label deal. Now they entirely thrive on touring and merch and whatever other kind of things they can do. And maybe they get picked up for a, you know, a laundry detergent commercial or something. <laughs> or, um, some, or, or, like or maybe download- subsist, not thrive. Subsist, whoever, yeah, yeah. Whoever's downloading like Apple, iTunes music too, you know, right. like there's some of those models and all of this brings into question two things for me. Like one, the idea of collage art, like some artists make their entire living fine artists on, you know, super intricate collage work, right. That is always drawn from other images and things like that. And then those paintings or or rather those compositions are hanging in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And they are going to very large art collectors, you know, for millions of dollars sometimes. So I'd like to pick your brain about that for a moment too. And then I think similarly, you think about music genres, specifically like hip hop or electronic music, which are essentially based on the skill of sampling and composing again, like digging and finding all these old sounds and then creating them into these new compositions that sometimes aren't entirely different than, you know, old ones. We can all remember like the under pressure versus the vanilla ice thing. Like that's the same exact song. And then, so could you speak to that a little bit? Like sampling and music, collage work and fine art. How are those different? And what can we learn about how some of those things have been approached in the past? And can any of that mindset be applied to the issue that I think you very rightfully are raising right now? Well, I think, uh, Stephen, that these are that those are exactly the two fields that should inform a basis for future case law when it comes to this to open AI and AI. I mean, just basically text to image or image to image uh, or whatever, uh, you know, uh, artificial intelligence. So I used to be friends, or I should say acquaintances with a collage artist who went by the name Winston Smith after the 1984 character. He, if you ever bought any Dead Kennedys albums on vinyl, the booklets that were inside often had his uh, collage oh, art. Oh, rad. And he also did some covers for The New Yorker. So he was pretty established. And he mostly drew his art. uh, The source material was old commercial art from old advertising from vintage magazines. And so in that case, you know, it's interesting. And I talked to him about that. And he said, well, the source, the, the, the original copyright holders not only did not care about, or first of all, in many cases, they weren't around anymore because uh, it was old. But even if they'd, he'd used more recent material as the sources, they, it's commercial. And commercial stuff isn't protected as in the same way. It's more open legally to being repurposed. And the copyright holders aren't litigious. They don't care because it's like, hell, we're paying to put this material out in the world. And even if people are using it to make fun of it, like we don't care. It's it's basically disposable. It mm-hmm. doesn't have this. You know, they're not. They're trying to move uh, laundry detergent. They're not trying to 
brand themselves as artists and get gallery shows, right? So the motivation's different. So basically the people you're poaching are happy to be poached. They yeah. just don't care. And there's a nuance there that's important to point out because I feel like that is always going to be the counter argument to someone like yourself who's saying, hey, we can't just be repurposing things. People could always say, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? So I think that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I hate to say it, but, you know, the language of consent sort of applies here too, right? I mean, it's it's one thing to say, like if Google had come to the Authors Guild and said, hey, we have this great idea. We don't want to make any money off it. We just think we just want to create a new library of Alexandria. Can you guys help us out? I think things would have gone very differently for them than the fact that they didn't, there was no consent, no attempt at obtaining consent. The three uh, plaintiffs in the lawsuit that you cited, cited probably would have responded differently had they been approached and said, hey, how do you feel about this? I mean, I used to drive a taxi in the days of where you weren't allowed to smoke in a taxi and people well, you still can't. And, you know, I, my policy was always, if you asked me if you could smoke, I'd always say yes. But if you just lit up, I'd tell you to put that shit out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, <laughs> um, so, um, you know, I think that the consent thing is a huge thing. I was also thinking of like Roy Lichtenstein's work. Yep. Um, it really always pissed off cartoonists. And the reason was that here's a guy making bank by basically elevating the lowest of low art, uh, you know, cheesy comics, and then selling these paintings for millions of dollars each, while the cartoonists who drew them, the original stuff, it, you know, made $40 a page. And that just didn't seem right. And I think that there's there's no legal basis for that, but it sort of rubs, you know, people the wrong way when, for example, the De- Mississippi Delta Blues, which, is, you know, basically was exploited and the, the musicians got paid nothing. They subsisted, gets appropriated by Elvis Presley, and he gets to build a mansion, right? Yeah. So, so I think there's that kind of issue going on. Well, so talk and- more about the music issue too, because I think the point's well taken that if a collage artist who's pre- predominantly cutting up commercial clippings from magazines, et cetera, I think that's a really solid point, right? If it was meant to be commercial, it's not litigious. There's a nuance there, etc. However, mm-hmm. with music that is heavily that heavily relies on sampling, I know that there are some rules about you know the amount of seconds you can take in a clip, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Et However, that's different because that is truly someone else's art that is in fact being reconfigured and repurposed for new art without any remuneration for that artist in most cases. So, what what about that? How should we be thinking about that? Well, I think it's something that has to be hashed out through the process of politics, right? I mean, the law is the manifestation of a general political orientation of a society at any given point of in time. And that orientation is constantly in flux and has to be determined by uh, people arguing and saying, uh, you know, information wants to be free, culture wants to wants to evolve. Uh, you know, we all rest on the shoulders of giants. Today's hip hop musicians who are pulling from a Northern soul artist from 1962, that's, that's, that's just evolution of music. And it, if anything, it's a hat tip, it's an honor. But then there's the pushback from the copyright holders who are like, look, you know, you, you, if we'd rather you didn't do it at all, but, and then the politicians are trying to navigate some kind of compromise. And that's, I think that the music sampling case law is exactly like the direction that where when lawmakers look at what to do about AI, 
that's exactly what they should look at. They should say, look, there's obviously an interest and there's a need for this technology to draw on existing data. And it'll it could become prohibitive if, you know, every time we want to scrape a Ted Rawl cartoon, he's asking me for a thousand bucks. But on the other hand, AI is too cool and too smart and too potentially innovative to quash that way. But on the other hand, we don't want Ted Rawl sleeping under a bridge because he can't monetize his art anymore at all. So what do we do? And some people don't care, but I think we have to argue about it and fight about it and debate about it and do and argue over podcasts and in <laughs> op-eds and people are going to bitch back and forth and we will arrive at some compromise. In America, we have a tendency to just put the driverless car out on a highway where nobody knows it's driverless and hope that everything works out and, <laughs> and regulate later. That's the thing about the open AI stuff. It's going to get better than it is now. It's going to constantly get better. So I think we're, we're in this adjustment period. And like everybody, I went straight to my inner Luddite when I first heard of this. But then I always remembered, and I wrote about this in the piece for Who, What, Why?, I remember my father, who was a rabid technologist, who uh, he was a, a pretty notable aeronautical engineer. And he said, technology is always neutral. It does good things and bad things. It's all about what people choose to do with it and how they regulate it and how they adapt to it. Like, you know, Napster fucked up the music business, but streaming is the music business now. And, you know, I don't want to say that everything's going to be peachy keen, but the one thing that's for sure is that you can't just wish these things away. You have to be like, okay, they're here. And now we got to figure out what it means and regulate it intelligently, but not, not excessively, but enough. It's exciting and cool. And that's the best attitude to look at it as exciting and cool and then figure out, okay, now it, what's the downside? Well, and you're circumstance i think is a little bit of a canary in a coal mine right for for a creative person in a particular way i mean if i type in to a text generator like my name do an essay in the form of me i don't know that i have enough stuff out there that it could pull that i'm not enough of a name but you are and so have you done that have you plugged into mid-journey or one of those like I, i'd like to see a comic in the style of ted Rawl and and what, what does it look like? Is it something that you can be like, well, I can just use these to crank them out now? <laughs> well, that'd be great. You know, I could yeah. just, I, I can just kick off for the day and go for a bike ride and just yeah. watch and just watch the money roll right yeah, in. Yeah, it's like Homer in the little dipping bird toy. You know, you're uh -huh. just like, I just, and then he finds out that you could just press Y and he triples his productivity. <laughs> totally. Uh, yeah, no, that, that's a funny idea. I did, I did do that. The art, that I was, maybe I was typing in the wrong commands, but the art came out like total crap, total garbage. I was like, I don't have much to worry about for now. Interestingly, one of the things about copying art, and I think this is true, whether it's an algorithm or whether you're doing it as an artist, is it's just the simpler the drawing style, the more difficult it is to replicate. Mm -hmm. um, so good luck replicating Homer Simpson compared to, say, a Tony Millionaire comic, mm -hmm. which I bring him up because uh, he and I don't like each other. And we were having a discussion online and he's like, you can't draw for shit. And I was like, I can draw your comic and no one would ever fucking know it wasn't you. And he's like, all right. So we made a cash bet about that. And I drew one of his comics 
comics and I won. And it's not because I'm such a great artist. It's because it's so intricate and so detailed that the more lines you have going in there, the closer it starts to approximate the original. But like if you're looking at a a very simple line, like, uh, you know, high and lowest or some shit like that, it's got to be every line has to be exactly right. And that's just not, that's hard to pull off. Yeah. I think about that with the artist, David Shrigley, who I'm a big fan of. And his stuff is like all, it looks like, you know, it kind of, the style is almost like, oh, hey, a nine-year-old drew this. But if you sat down and tried to imitate that, it is impossible. And then all of a sudden the genius starts like sort of dawning on you. Um, So, I mean, I I don't think XKCD would be that easy to copy. Really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Not, which is not if you're really looking stick at stick figures, right? Stick figures yeah. with complex ideas. Yeah, but I did put in some essay stuff. And obviously, look, all words look the same on a computer screen. So as a visual artist, I, I was amused. I, I, I tried some stuff like poetry or rock songs in the style of Ted Rall. Um, and I mean, it was like sort of like a bad parody of my work, I would say, mm-hmm. is the best way to look at it. Um read a pretty good assessment of chat GPT where it said that, you know, basically what it does is it writes competent prose, but without any quirks or spark, like uh, to quote Seinfeld, you know, he said, it's funny if it bends. I think it's interesting if it bends, right? Like if you have good prose always has a little bit of weirdness to it. There's no individuation in the, uh, in the chat bot currently there will be i'm sure but it just or the illusion of it i should say i think like if you really didn't know my work that well you could easily be fooled um in not not, you know by reading an essay and be like oh maybe ted roll wrote that but if you really knew me and you were you'd be like nah that's ted roll on a very stupid day like you know well i have the honor of working with you week in week out on the strips that you do for who what why so i see that process of like what are the ideas that we're kicking around this week then the rough drafts and then the sort of final and it's true that like yeah there's something that in the aggregate looks like your style like you sort of get to know how you're going to draw a person a cop or a flight attendant or biden you know or whatever it is over a period of time but you know, two Bidens don't necessarily look exactly alike. It's sort of just all your kind of inflection and tone on it. And so that's, that's what I think gets drained out when you take all that stuff in the aggregate, the irony is like for a computer to do it, it just sort of sucks all the life out of it. It's like, this is kind of what it does, but it doesn't really look like, and also just the ideas aren't there. I mean, at the end of the day, like there's some strong ideas underpinning the strips that you're doing. So that's really where a lot of a lot of the life is. But there's weird blind spots to AI art, right? Like that idea that you can sort of capture the likeness of something, but not really the spirit. You know, like there was a story in BBC Science Focus about people were just reporting that all of these like photorealistic images had these terrifying nightmarish hands. Like mm. AI art can't do hands. Like it'll have too many fingers <laughs> or a ball with fingers coming out of it or like an old lady playing piano. And it's like, oh, that's so sweet. And then she's got like three claw fingers and it's very subtle, but like you can see all the detail of the veins. And it's because the AI doesn't know what a hand is. It only knows the play of light and mm. texture around this area of what we call the body. So it's like, I don't know. 
doesn't matter how many fingers, you know, like you can, you have to be very specific <laughs> about saying, no, I need five fingers on this goddamn thing. Otherwise, this is not a hand, but it's like, I don't know. I don't know how you humans are. This seems that, hand like to me, and it does seem hand like. I mean, it's like you look at it, it's like, well, there's nine fingers and one of them's coming out the back. But yeah, I mean, it looks <laughs> it looks like a hand, just not a not a correct one. All know? of that's also for now, right? Like all of yeah. the things, all the stuff we're talking about right now could be sort don't of don't be punctuated. an apologist, Stephen. I'm, I'm, I'm not. An <laughs> what if you. I, I this yeah. is the big reveal is that I'm just yeah. this like deep fake bot who's like yeah. on the <laughs> Zoom call, but like. Well, you can it see how many all... fingers he's got. Steve's I know. Got hey, look at his fingers, fingers man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a bot. You got to tell me or that's entrapment. I I think that like, <laughs> like it is all for now, right? We're seeing like such this like early fledgling stage of this technology for that's sure. Right. A lot of the things that we're talking about, like, oh, well, don't worry. It doesn't have a soul yet. It doesn't have these little flourishes or quirks or et cetera, like that stuff almost certainly if we're to believe technology you know heretofore as any kind of precedent like that shit's going to happen you even look at uh cgi animation right and i i remember learn hearing that they would make these crazy leaps and bounds in the field of really good cgi animation but they could never get water down and like water specifically was this sort of final hill to climb and it, hair Water and, and yeah, and exactly. Yeah. And so they would actually there. There are whole teams in like at DreamWorks and all this kind of stuff that they'd be like, "All right, let's we're the fucking water skunk works of this department, and we're gonna figure out how to do water right." And eventually, you know, like it is getting better and better and better. So the thing, like the hands, I'd imagine that's a similar thing. Maybe just because of the nature of hands that they're so sort of varied from person to person, and they have all these different moving pieces, and so it's both hilarious and predictable that like something as nuanced as a hand would be difficult for a robot to wrap its head around. What I also wonder, Ted, is, okay, so we've been talking about the more visual art component to the it, this AI sort of shit show that, that's going on. What are your feelings about how something like a large language model like ChatGPT, et cetera, and how that's scraping information how does that differ from scraping visual information? Now, I think there's one thing to be said where it's like, hey, write me an essay in the style of this person and then passing it off as that person. When does that become plagiarism? But yeah. are there concerns that AI is doing this sort of predictive, hyper-intelligent writing development using a bunch of information it's scraped from the internet without asking anyone. Is that problematic? Is that different? Like, what should we be concerned about in that arena of what OpenAI and other similar companies are doing? Well, I mean, I guess the concern here is that for people like us who create content is that, you know, we don't want to be taken advantage of for the benefit of some giant mega corporation that's going uh, you know, to allow people like Elon Musk to buy their 74th house. If we can be partnered in somehow, that's okay. You know, content creation will change. I mean, look, this is going to, this technology is going to free us from a lot of bullshit, right? We, in the same way that there's probably people who are no longer getting divorced because of GPS is, is ending arguments about how to read a map. <laughs> there's just a lot of technology that it, that makes our lives easier. This I could easily see using this for sort of what I would call crap writing. Like, you know, like you're in an office and you just need to write a simple memorandum, you know, memo to files, 
I did this this morning. I did that. I did this at noon to tell, explain to my boss what I was up to. A lot of that stuff, you know, I mean, it doesn't really need brilliant writing. I think of like legal briefs. A lot of legal briefs don't need to have the kind of beautiful prose that many of them do, because in many cases, only one person, a judge, is ever going to read them, or maybe two, their clerk and the judge. As long as there's some regulation, it's going to make life better. But we will lose stuff too. You know, like a Lord of the Rings battle scene even if you updated it to current CGI, it's never going to look as cool as a battle scene from Ben-Hur with a cast of thousands. Uh, it just isn't the same because it's not real. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so you do lose stuff. And we, we definitely, you know, we lost something when we, we left illuminated manuscripts. They're cool in a way that nothing that followed will ever be cool in that particular way again. We lost something when in my profession, editorial cartoons were limited to just black and white and went to color. And we had to really make that black and white work with textures and stuff. And, you know, with color and Photoshop, you kind of don't have to do that. You lose something. You always lose something. What I don't want to do is see the entire field of writing and drawing and painting basically become it's impossible to make a living. I mean, we unfortunately, we don't live in France where we have a minister of culture that's going to you know, subsidize the arts. This is a capitalist society. The only way, you know, people who say that information wants to be free, well, they, they don't pay my rent every month. The, uh, the whole idea of, of copyright and, and intellectual property ownership, that's all fairly new. I mean, we're talking about this because it's in our lifetimes and we all make our living as white collar people creating stuff that then we charge people for. But you go back 100, 200 years and like everything was the commons. And, you know, Mm -hmm. there's, I'm doing research for a project on um, this guy, Sebastian Brandt, who wrote this book, The Ship of Fools, which was just basically this catalog of kvetching about all the ways that people were obnoxious sinners in 1496 and like how everybody was not Christian. And it was a satire of like, kind of like Canterbury Tales, right? Came out in Strasbourg. The printing press was like 60 years old by that point. And it became this phenomenon. And and then you're able to track how people were ripping it off. Like there was an Italian version. Somebody just wrote their own version, copied his thing exactly, translated it into Italian. Or in England, there were a couple of different guys who did versions of it that were slightly modified. And he didn't have any recourse and probably didn't even know about a lot of it. No one even would have stopped to think like, that this didn't belong to them. It was just like, well, this is out there. I've seen this book. I can do my version, better, worse, or just simply a translation of it. And that was like, that was how all culture was communicated for most of human civilization up until the last couple of years when we're like, hey, wait, we can put a stamp on this that says it belongs to me. All of which is sort of a preamble to say, is this one of those technologies coming along that democratizes the ability to create and I wonder if it sort of begins to force a new model of, if not creative ownership, certainly the idea of like how how capital flows among people, how to come back to that idea. How do you keep artists and writers creating and how do you keep them housed and, you know, with insurance and all of this, if, you know, it all shifts, how do you incentivize people to do that? Is, is something on the horizon? Is that the singularity? Like, yeah, we're just not going to have ownership of things in the same way anymore. 
Well, I think as an artist, I know that there's always been a certain percentage of illicit use of my work. Technically speaking, if a corporation uses one of my cartoons in a PowerPoint, they're supposed to get my permission. If a school puts it into a reader for their class, they're supposed to get permission. I know they don't always do that. A lot of Ted uh, Rawl porn out there, too. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, the thing is, but that doesn't matter as long as I still have a base revenue. I'd go even further. I'd say even as long as I'm able to pay my bills, even if 95% of the revenue from Ted Rawl products is stolen by other people, I'm still okay. When it's all digital, when intellectual property can just be scraped by a bot instantaneously, completely frictionlessly over over a high-speed download or upload, at that point, you know, that's when society can't rely on sort of intrinsic uh, barriers to entry. There are no barriers to entry at mm-hmm. all. Anybody can, can take anything they want. We have to figure it out if we care. Or what's going to happen is, and I, I suspect we probably won't figure it out adequately, what will happen is there will be a bloodbath in the arts, and uh, a lot of people will stop creating because it just won't be worth anything. You know, we were talking about the alt weeklies and all the cartoonists who no longer really make it. And, um, you know, I mean, we'll see that across the board. It's going to, there's already people who are 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, who are thinking, well, what do I want to do with my life? And they think about, say, music. And they're like, ah, there's no money in music. Oh, maybe I'll become a cartoonist. Ah, there's no money in cartooning. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they go on and do something else. As a society, we are a little poorer when that happens. So um, I think we need to figure out if we care about that. And if we do, then we have to figure out what to do about it. Ted Roll, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to thank talk you, to you these yeah. things. Yeah. Um, now, where on this internet of, uh, of money-grubbing <laughs> monsters can, uh, <laughs> which, which terrible system can people find you on? If they, if well, you... there's there's this website called whowhatwhy.org that runs my <laughs> stuff on Saturdays and uh, have this awesome editor there who, actually, I really appreciate your edits more than I can say. And um, you can also go to my website, rawl.com. And uh, there's also a podcast called DMZ America, uh, which... Uh, it comes out midweek usually, which I do with uh, conservative cartoonist Scott Stantis. And that's everywhere podcasts are sold. Great. Great. Uh, well, this has been Journos. I'm Brandon R. Reynolds. I'm Stephen Jackson. We'll see you next time. Take care. Journos is produced by Dave Coates. And again, Journos is now available as a service. In fact, we're calling it Journos as a Service. So if your podcast has a question or a mystery that you'd like solved, give us a holler. You can reach us at journos at journos.net. 